Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Maynard, Conservative MP for Blackpool North and Clevelies, and Helen Barnard, Associate Director of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, to reflect on poverty and the welfare state in Britain 80 years on from the publication of the Beveridge Report in 1942. That report, of course, became the blueprint for social policy in post-war Britain, as William Beveridge, the economist who helped shape the welfare state, argued that philanthropy would not be enough to win the battle against what he called the five giants of idleness, ignorance, disease, squalor and want. Beveridge proposed what became known as a cradle-to-grave programme of government support to establish a national minimum standard of living. So Helen and Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Helen, this is really your specialist subject. You've been as you told me earlier, working around poverty alleviation and researching in that area for a decade now. And your book in this series is called Want. Tell me a bit about this new beverage report and why it was necessary. Well, I think, so I think the thing about the beverage report is it was very much a product of its time. So it was published in 1942. It became the basis for our post-war welfare state. But it was very much, it was coming out of the industrial era. So one of the interesting things, so when Beveridge was coming up with some of his ideas ahead of that report, he actually started the year the first Ford car came off the production line. So the problems that he was trying to fix have massively changed. And I think that one of the things that we can see is that the system that was set up based on his report, I think, has, has actually performed very well on its own terms. It's done many of the things it wanted to do. So, you know, if you take the employment services, the problem that Beveridge wanted to tackle was the fear of mass unemployment, particularly with people gathered in cities and the danger of social unrest. And so you can really see that still in our employment services. They are really good at getting lots of people into jobs pretty quickly if they're just unemployed and they've got no other issues so they kind of succeed on their own terms but that's not the problem we're facing you know in the labor market today we're facing two problems one is poor quality work so millions of people in work but not earning enough to pay the bills 
And those people who are out of work are overwhelmingly now disabled people, carers, parents. And our employment services were not designed to fix either of those problems, and they're really bad at it. And you can see it also with the education system. So the education system, the idea you should have national education, all children should stay in education until they were 15 or later. You know, the idea of that is you equip the kind of emerging working classes to be literate and numerate to be able to do the new jobs. And they're pretty good at that. You know, there's still room to, room to improve. But by and large, most kids leave school able to read and write. What the education system doesn't do is help adults reskill to do five different careers in their lifetimes as jobs are destroyed and new ones are created. And it's the same with the health service. You know, the health service is was really designed for two problems. One was to prevent mass communicable diseases, so mass immunisation, so that the new cities weren't rife with typhus and so on. And the second thing is to help fix people who have had industrial accidents or been injured in the war and get otherwise healthy people back to work. Now again, you can see the health service, even under strain, is pretty good at those things. But that's not our problem now. Our problem is lots of people living with long-term multiple conditions that need to be prevented and managed. And the health service just isn't equipped to, to achieve that. So I think that's why it feels like we need to reevaluate what are today's versions of those problems and yeah. what services do we actually need to fix them. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. So the the institutions that we have are still there, but the problems that we're trying to fix are different ones. Um, and I mean, one of those those problems does seem to increasingly be poverty. I mean, that was a problem 80 years ago, is a problem today. 8.8 million people in the UK are in absolute poverty. And those figures, you know, rise when you take into housing, housing costs and so on. Um, we've also seen rough sleeping increase like 38% since 2010. Um, in what ways are the, is the problem of poverty the same, different? And where are kind of the holes in the institutions now? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So that the problem, it still exists, but actually the face of it is very different. So if you go back, not just to beverages time, but actually even just 30 years, you thought, you know, who was in poverty? It was overwhelmingly older people, so pensioners, and out-of-work, working-age families. Essentially, if you could get your main breadwinner into work, you were probably going to be okay. What's happened now is actually we've seen a complete turnaround. So pensioners now have the lowest rates of poverty of any group, uh, which, to be honest, we should celebrate that more than we do. I mean, that's a pretty amazing achievement as a country. Um, and you've now got very low numbers of people out of work unless they've got health conditions. So, you know, the new face of poverty, so who's in poverty today? It is overwhelmingly working families. So something like three quarters of children in poverty have at least one parent in work. Quite a lot of them have two parents in work. And those, and other than that, it's disabled people and carers. So it's those groups these days, rather than the kind of the previous face of poverty. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that if all of these problems exist are different to the old ones, that the welfare state we have wasn't built to solve them. Is the welfare state just not working anymore? I think it is still far better to have it than not to have it. I think we shouldn't forget that if you took all this stuff away, life would be unimaginably worse for most of us. Um, and I, it, one thing's actually I thought when I was researching the book, how resilient 
that welfare state has been. You know, people have been predicting its demise pretty much since it was set up. And actually, it's still going strong. Um, But it does mean it needs to evolve. I think the other thing, particularly when you look at social security, is that social security, I think, is doing far more of the heavy lifting for society's problems than it should be doing. So if you kind of strip it back and you say, why do we have social security? What are the different bits of it supposed to achieve? Essentially, what it's, you know, you kind of can go through what problems is it trying to solve? Well, it's trying to solve the idea that not everybody will be in work all the time and people will need support while they change jobs. And it's supposed to fix the idea that people have different levels of costs and it's not reasonable to say to an employer, you should pay employee A more than employee B because they've got three kids. It's also supposed to deal with some of the extra costs of life. So the way housing costs vary, the cost of disability. It's supposed to do all those things. The trouble is what it's now having to do is compensate for markets that are deeply dysfunctional. So the housing market just is really properly dysfunctional. It just doesn't supply the housing you need for people who just need somewhere affordable and decent to live. And so what you see is the housing cost bit of Social Security just ballooning up. But it's because we haven't fixed the housing market. And similarly with the labour market, you have more and more people in low paid, insecure jobs. And the Social Security system is having to compensate for that to a greater degree than I think is reasonable. If we actually manage those markets better, we could then reduce the pressure on the social security budget and on the health service for that matter, and let them perform better. Paul, as a Conservative Member of Parliament, what do you think of Beveridge's vision of cradle to grave support? Is that still the ideal which this country's government aspires to deliver and that you as an MP seek to deliver for your constituents? Well, Beveridge is always on my mind because I, I, I went to college and my first room in my first year was on the very courtyard that he used to march around in the early 40s as he tried to dream up the Beveridge report. So I always think of that quad as he paced up and down on those wintry mornings coming up with his schemes. Even what I think he came up with uh, back in 1942, probably around some of the conditionality that he proposed doesn't really apply in this day and age and certainly isn't in the realm of the politically possible. But I think that vision of cradle to grave still if you explore the elements of what people are looking for, I think still speaks to what people expect. Um, support for those who are at the start of their lives, in education and so on, but also dignity at the end of life. You know, it's still a yearning on all, for all of us to have dignity at every stage in our life. And the political debate is done over how you deliver that dignity, the extent to which the state plays a role or doesn't play a role. So do you think some of that is politically impossible to deliver? What do you mean by that? Well, let me just try and dig up one of my beverage quotes that I often um, read out. He made clear the safety net would be so so minimalist as to, and I quote, Leave the person assistant with an effective motive to avoid the need for assistance to rely on earnings or insurance. That, to me, is the sort of thing that in this day and age I don't think will be acceptable. And I'm probably quite rightly. I think there is a role for conditionality, but I think that 
we get told off now we're even using the phrase carrot and stick but I think you need much more carrot and much less stick these days and to understand why it is that people are in the situation they are in I think still there is some concern among some people that people choose not to participate and I think when I speak to my own constituents that's certainly not the case at all so I think there is much better granular understanding of why people are financially vulnerable at any particular moment and the degree of churn that's what strikes me most in my constituency is people oscillating in and out of poverty in poverty maybe two or three times in the space of two or three years even and it's that level of churn that I think and that financial precariousness that I think policymakers really need to get a grip of these days mm-hmm. yeah Helen what do you think about that does that fit with your your picture and your research that kind of in and out of poverty, instability, that, you know, that, that picture? I think the instability, definitely. And I think that sense of there being people who are constantly insecure, who even if they are working and they've got somewhere to live at the moment, the work isn't, not only isn't paying enough, but they don't know from one week to the next what shifts they're working. They turn up for a shift having already paid for childcare and their transport, and then it gets cancelled. And the same actually with housing. So because we've had so many people crowded into the private rented sector, you've now got enormous numbers of people who are living with this constant threat of eviction over their heads, and also often living in really unhealthy housing. But they can't complain about it because they know that the landlord can kick them out at any time. So I think you've got, and I think Paul's right, there is something though about this isn't just a short-term blip for a lot of people. So I think we have in our minds that with work, you go into a low-paid job, you work your way up. By the time you get to middle age, you've got some security and a decent income. And that's just not being borne out for most most people who are in low-paid jobs. You go back 10 years later, they're still in a low-paid job. They've had very little training. They've got no route into a better bit of the labour market. And I think that, you know, you've got then the health impacts. So with the book, one of the things I looked at was the health impacts of people living in that kind of stress, of feeling the shame that many people feel for a long time. And it was really, I, I found it very striking, the physiological impacts that has on your immune system and your blood pressure and the way that feeds through to health inequalities. And it's that invisible impact, I think, that we overlook a lot. Yeah, I can see Paul is is nodding as if to suggest that he he recognises some of that. I mean, Paul, you're MP for for Blackpool, which has low life expectancy issues with poverty. Are those things that you that you recognise? Oh, very much so. The two Blackpool seats are the first and second most deprived seats that my party holds. Eight out of the ten most deprived neighbourhoods. We have not just low life expectancy, but actually the lowest healthy life expectancy i.e. around 53, 54. That means that's the age at which people are dropping out of the labour market through ill health. And that's an average. That means people my age, 46, 47, are becoming too ill to remain in work. And that's goes back a bit to what Helen says. A lot of work in Blackford is very low paid, hospitality related. And what I think is often lacking in that sort of role 
is that sense of agency and autonomy that people look for. How, do they have much choice over what they do during the day or how they structure that work or the ability to fit that work around their other family demands? That degree of agency and autonomy that many of us might take for granted in our working lives simply isn't available to them. And that has a mental health impact, that has a frustration, that has stress on families as well, not just the individual worker. So we need to look at this ecosystem of work much more carefully. One of my frustrations is the government commissioned a report from Matthew Taylor a number of years ago now around quality of work and it, it sat on, on a shelf somewhere uh, unacknowledged for a good few years now. I think we need to go back to that to properly understand just some of the small changes even that we can make that can improve the quality of work, not just the quantity of it and the, extent and the remuneration for that work. Yeah. And there's some of the really things that sound incredibly dull and will never make a good slogan, like enforce, enforcement. So one of the things you often get is there is lots of debate about what new regulation there should be or what regulation should be removed. And there's zero discussion of are we actually enforcing the regulations that we have already got? And particularly, I mean, as Paul said, one of the things that Taylor report said was we need a single enforcement body to enforce labour market regulation because it's split across three at the moment, I think. And the onus is very much on the individual worker to challenge what might be unfair behaviour. And we all know that if you're in that kind of work, if you start challenging what's happening, you will just find you don't get shifts anymore. And you don't know what your rights are anyway, because no one tells you if you're an employee or a worker or self-employed. So actually, you could do some things which wouldn't be new regulation, wouldn't actually be that expensive, but could be quite revolutionary at the bottom of the labour market. But we do need to get on and do them. We've been seem to have been talking about it for a while and it never quite seems to happen. Is that kind of a live conversation among MPs, legislators at the moment? Or to, to state the bleeding obvious, we've had rather a rocky period of uncertainty and um, uh, if not chaos in recent weeks, but I think as the government settles down to look at what um, how it responds to these more difficult economic times, then I think though those reports are going to be taken off the shelves and dusted down again. You know, I, I think Baroness McGregor Smith did a report on in-work progression, just as important. Julie Dean did a report on self-employment, and a big issue in Blackpool with disguised self-employment. People opting for self-employment when it's not really a rational economic decision. So there's all sorts of work that's gone on at different periods of time over the past four or five years that, that the the morale-sapping, oxygen-sapping effect of Brexit and all of that, I think, sucked the life out of a lot of sensible policy making. And we now have the space, I hope, to try to get back to that. Mm. I mean, as you say, Paul, the kind of onus for action is very much now on the government. It's we've we've had years of of cuts to 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 benefits we've had changes in universal credit um which some people have have said has made it much more challenging for people to access that kind of help that they need um and the joseph roundtree foundation warned uh, earlier this year about hundreds of thousands more people going to be who are going to be pushed into poverty um this is a conservative government that's been in power for a long time for you know more than a decade as you say your constituents have kind of come in and out of, of, of poverty is is the conservative party really able to um to improve things hasn't it been been pushing people into poverty oh i don't think i would agree with that at all 
we faced a series of quite difficult economic periods and we're suddenly facing one again now. And I think my party's approach is trying to enable people a supportive state rather than a state that tries to deny people agency and autonomy, I think is broadly the right way to go. But I think we have to understand how we can better deliver that support. One thing that struck me during the COVID epidemic was the extent to which public bodies, councils, government departments and you know, utilities as well, were able to identify the most vulnerable, the most in need. And I think we need to take a similar approach now. It is as urgent as the COVID pandemic. We know who the people who are in need, who are going to be in need. Why wait for them to approach a food bank or citizens advice bureau, anticipate that need, ensure that they're claiming all that they are entitled to? I'm always struck by constituents who come to me looking for help, who are not claiming what they are entitled to in the first place. So you're automatically starting off with one hand tied behind your back. Yes, there's always improvements that government can make. Now I've been looking at how we can change uh, debt repayments for benefits, for example, that would cost the DWP nothing at all. But actually we're making immense difference to the weekly income of some of my least follow-up constituents. So there are creative things that a conservative government can do that would actually manage things better allied to our fundamental belief that we need to get people off benefits in the long run. It's not in our interest to keep people trapped and enmeshed in a system that doesn't work in their interest. Helen, what do you think about that? Is the problem about helping people access the support that is there or is it something else? I think it's both. I think, I mean, Paul's absolutely right. If you take just pensioners, there's something like a million pensioners who are not getting pension credit, so the top-up you can get to the state pension if you don't have a private pension. That's an enormous number of people who are missing out on what they are absolutely entitled to and are living in hardship and hunger and cold as a result. And actually the things like the debt repayments one is really interesting because very large numbers of people on universal credit are having money knocked off before it ever gets to them for debt repayments. Most of those debt repayments are to public bodies. They're not consumer debt. It is paying back advances because there's such a long wait for your first payment. It is paying years old tax credit debt that nobody knew they had. It's paying back council tax. And some of the work that the Joseph Foundry Foundation and others have done have found that actually if you reformed those debt repayments, it would make as big a difference to people's incomes as restoring that £20 uplift to benefits. I mean, it is just enormous. And it's baffled me for years that the DWP has no standardised assessment for debt repayments. So when you're sitting with your work coach and they say, well, you've got these debt repayments, they don't have a tool on their laptop, which, you know, Step Change or the debt charities have, where it comes up and says, OK, what's your income? What's your outgoings? Here is an affordable level of repayments. And things like that, I think, could make a big difference. But it is also about the support available. So because we've had so many cuts and freezes, we've seen a deepening of poverty. And for instance, it's more than four in 10 people in on universal credit are food insecure. So are in a kind of fairly extreme point of poverty, not able to afford food and other you know, basic essentials. And I don't think anyone thinks that's right. I don't think anyone thinks that's how we want people to be living. And it certainly doesn't help anyone get back to work or improve their situation if all of what they're thinking about is I'm really cold and really hungry and my kid needs new shoes or they're going to have, you know, it's going to damage their feet. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's no way to live. Yeah. 
bearing that in mind, Paul, the the numbers of people who still need help, even though they're they're accessing universal credit. What what are in addition to schemes like debt repayment, the the the, the projects, the changes that you would ask uh, Rishi Sunak and the government that he leads to to think seriously about in the coming months? How long do you have? I can start uh, reading off a uh, shopping list in a way. And um, I think it's addressing what what most people call the poverty premium. Why are people paying more because they happen to live in poverty? Why are they paying more disproportionately for making a bad mistake or a bad judgment than I would make for making that similar bad judgment? It's about access to affordable credit rather than things like buy now, pay later or doorstop lending or, or, or whatever. It's about if your fridge breaks down or your cooker breaks down, that you can access the funds you need to replace that white good immediately rather than relying on a microwave or relying on takeouts at £20 a go. It's all sort of, there are things that more than just government can do. Why is it that Tesco Express has a markup compared to the Tesco Superstore several miles away that, that many of these people can't get to? Why is it that often their nearest ATM charges £2.75 for a cash withdrawal when if they walked 500 metres the other way they could get a free-to-use ATM? There are all sorts of structural inbuilt um, elements of how the market works that place a po- uh, premium on experiencing poverty. And that really doesn't help. So yes, government needs to do things, but actually the wider environment, I think, uh, the way in which the market is functioning isn't working in their interest too. And nowhere is that, I think, more clear or actually than the need for food. And, you know, we've had some really great work done again by Henry Dimbleby on the national food strategy that has come out in one way or another via the government that, once again, there's an immense amount of work there if we choose to take it up and engage with it. Paul's absolutely right. And I think actually that speaks to another area of society that's changed and our institutions haven't kept up. And that's actually the way that consumer markets function, because we have our whole regulatory system is based around the idea that there's kind of two things you have to do. You need to prevent monopolies. So don't let companies buy up too much in the same market. And you need to create a a fair playing field for consumers so that they have the information they need to make decisions and companies can't undercut each other on standards around labour or whatever. And then the active consumer will kind of do the rest because companies will innovate and reduce prices. The trouble is now we have digital markets. None of that holds. That's not how markets work anymore. So the big global tech giants, they don't wait for another company to get big and then try and take them over. What they do is gobble up tiny little startups and absorb them. And they buy up companies across lots of different markets because their power comes from the data they have about consumers and their networks. And then what you find is that with digital markets, you know, if you go into a shop, if two of you go into a shop, you will see the same product at the same price. That's not true online. So when I when I shop, when I search for to buy a kettle, the kettle I see, the options I see will probably be different to the options of somebody with a different profile to me, somebody who is richer or poorer. It can even vary on ethnicity. So there's research, there's one study in the States which showed that um, black consumers were being shown adverts for high-cost credit and bond bailsmen, and white consumers were not. So this whole way that consumer markets work 
has actually its, its regulation is no longer doing what it should be doing. So there's a kind of new two new ideas that I think need to be pushed out. One is around inclusive design. So designing so that what your product or your service is accessible to people on low incomes, to disabled people and so on. And the other is outcome based regulation. So rather than a long list of stuff companies have to tick off, what you say is it's your job to make sure no group of consumers is disproportionately getting a worse outcome and we'll judge you on those outcomes. Now, that's a different way of regulating. Regulators will need new skills, but that's what they need to do so that you don't get any group of consumers disadvantaged by the way the market and the algorithms that drive it are functioning. Because, again, that does increase poverty because low-income consumers are less valuable, so will often be at, you know, they're riskier in many ways. They will be at the kind of sharp end of some of those things. Yeah. And again, you know, Beverage could never have imagined that, but we need to get to grips with it now. Yeah, I mean, so, as you say, some of that sounds very far from what the welfare state was originally, you know, h- how that was originally conceived. And when you look at the the five giants, the words used, want, squalor, ignorance, they they feel like something from a different age. They they feel, in a way, much more self-contained. Do you think that the the concept of the welfare state is is just? Um, has changed in scale and size it's it, is it even possible to, to to think about these five distinct giants and problems anymore so i mean i i, I would say that yes i think you can you know you can translate them can't you into modern words so you know it's poverty poor housing skills and education health um and work So I think you can translate them and you still need to look at them. But I think perhaps we have more understanding now of the way that they're interconnected. And so the idea that the way you tackle health is through the health service. I think now we know that it's something like 80 percent of health outcomes are not determined by what kind of health care you get. They're determined by your housing and your work and whether you've got enough money to buy nutritious food and all those things. So I think that idea that you... I think you can look at them as individual problems, but you can only solve them if you tackle the way they're in, they're interconnected. Otherwise, you get that both the health service and social security particularly end up taking the strain for us not doing very well on the others. Yes, and I think if you go back to the 40s, and you look at what the post-war Labour government did as it built its New Jerusalem, each of those five giants had discrete policy solutions that they adopted, reforms they put in place, attempts to solve them. I think as the welfare state has evolved over time, those five giants, and yet you can rename them in modern parlance certainly, are becoming ever more enmeshed. If I look at Blackpool, yes, I see men's health issues, I see educational underperformance. I see, I see real difficulty in so many areas of social policy. But often, what's at the root of it is actually poor quality, substandard housing in the inner urban core. And so, you tackle housing, you start to make the first difference. Every year, um, Blackpool imports a large segment of its population that brings with it from elsewhere in the country some quite severe challenges, be it mental health issues, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, you name it. They bring that need with them. Blackpool stabilises them and then they move back where they 
originated from to be replaced by an entirely new cohort. So Bluffton is almost acting like a, a stabilisation zone uh, for many of the most um, uh, complex individuals in the country. So that means you can't just isolate and say, well, we, we just address education in Blackpool, it will all be wonderful. Actually, no, it's a whole ecosystem that you now need to look at. So for policymakers, you can't just pick on education and say that's it. And I think the challenge for my party is often that we talk so much about aspiration and social mobility that we forget that actually social mobility is as likely to be downwards as it is upwards. We talk about these things as though a meritocracy is a good idea, but when um, What's his name? Michael His name I can't remember now. The originator of the term uh, meritocracy, he came up with it. It was a bad thing because it was a self-reinforcing elite. I remember his name when I finished the uh, podcast. Uh, so, you know, we've just had a 46 days of a Liz Trust government who've seen the state as a bad thing to shrink. Uh, and we now also had a period of Boris Johnson, which a larger state was seen to be a good thing, a high spending state was seen to be a good thing. To me, it's somewhere in the middle. It's how do you right size the state? How do you make sure the state does things that it needs to do and, do and does them better, but also where it can occasionally restrict people's personal growth, that it takes a step back? Because ideally, it shouldn't need the state to solve all society's problems. But occasionally, yes, it does require the state to step in. It's finding that right balance. That's really difficult, I think, particularly for my political philosophy rather than the left, who always see the state as the answer to most things. Helen, just one final word from you before we, we wind up then. What do you think is the right size of the right size of state? How far are we from it? So I think I'm with Paul that I think it's about it doing the right things. And I think the state is just another expression of the commitments we make to one another in society. And it's one among many. One thing we haven't talked about that I think that does need to be thought about is public services were very much, I think, conceived by Beveridge and the people working with him on an industrial scale. And you can see that the language that's used that gets echoed, even David Freud's book when he was doing the work programme, he uses a phrase at one point, so the job centres will deal with the volume business and will get the voluntary sector to do the other stuff. And I think for many people, public services, it, it can feel like you're a bit of a widget being pushed through a production line. And I actually think that there is a version of public services which is about devolving down to the communities and empowering people much more through peer networks to define what they need and devolving the money down. And I think for modern problems in a kind of digital era of networks, I think we need to be rethinking public services to be less industrial scale, fix someone and move them on, and more devolve power and money and let people come together to support each other. And I think the state is one player in that, but they're not the only player. Yeah. Well, thanks so much to both of you, Helen and Paul, for joining today. And thanks very much to everybody who's tuned in to hear our discussion. If you want to read more about the Beveridge Report and Helen's words in her book, Want, then you can pick up a copy of the new Beveridge published by Agenda. If you enjoy this podcast, then grab a copy of Prospect Magazine, which is on shelves now, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock on classism and the BBC, Julian Glover on the institutions which are under attack, 
and Ferdinand Mount on how Brexit is destroying the Conservative Party and much more. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening. Look out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.